Welcome to my podcast series, The Real Deal on Drugs, where I try to answer some of the questions that young people have asked me about alcohol and other drugs. Anyone who's ever heard me speak at a school knows that I'm not here to lecture or tell teens what to do. Realistically, everyone has to make their own decisions about what they choose to do or not to do in this area. But it's important that whatever decision is made, it's based on the best information possible. As adults, we often tell young people what we think you need to know, rather than asking what you actually want to know. Hopefully, I'll be providing some of that information in this series. As I said in a previous episode, I don't claim to be perfect, and I sometimes get things wrong, and I will certainly admit to any mistakes I may make. But I will do my very best to give you guys the best quality and up-to-date information I can. Anyone can listen but it's important to remember that what is being talked about is done so with young people in mind. And of course, if you have friends who you think may be interested in what I say, you can share this podcast with them. I love what I do. As I always say, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I get to do what I love each and every day, and there's not a lot of people who can say that. Because I tell stories about young people who've had problems with alcohol and other drugs, including, sadly, some who have died, I'm often asked by students if there is one that particularly stands out. There certainly is, and I'm going to share that one today, but I also want to balance it out with one of the best things that's ever happened to me in terms of working with young people and what I do in schools. After finishing presenting to a group of Year 12s, which involved covering the topic of ecstasy or MDMA, a group of five young women approached me and asked me a question relating to the drug. It was quite obvious that they knew what they were talking about and had some relationship with the nightlife scene, but I answered them as honestly as I could, and they left the room. Six months later, this group of friends went to a music festival and all took ecstasy. Shortly afterwards, one of the girls became incredibly unwell. She fell to the ground and started to fit and foam at the mouth. Now, the important thing to note about this story is that where this group was standing, just 50 metres away was the medical tent. They could actually see it from where they were standing. But instead of picking their friend up, who was incredibly unwell, and taking her there, they picked her up and hid it behind a tree. When the medical staff finally found the young woman, she was still fitting, her friends nowhere to be found, and a group of young men were hovering over her, videoing her. She was rushed to hospital and unfortunately died not long afterwards. Her death still haunts me to this day. That group of friends had heard me speak three times across their final years of high school, and they knew how important it was to get medical help if something went wrong. I'd also told them that if you call an ambulance or get medical assistance, the police aren't involved. They knew all that, but they still did nothing. Why this death more than any other affects me so much is that one of the group now lives not very far away from me, literally just up the road. We've spoken a number of times about what happened that day. She still gets upset and says that she will never forgive herself for not getting help. She's also said that when their friend first became unwell, the group even mentioned my name, asking each other what Paul Dillon said they should do. But they did nothing. They got scared and froze. It's so very, very sad. But it's important to remember that there have been so many wonderful things that have happened as well. 
Over the years, lots of students have made a point of contacting me and thanking me after one of their mates got incredibly drunk. And because they'd heard me at their school, they, they knew what to do and they were able to help them. Recently, I had a parent at a parent night approach me after my talk and said, I just want to shake your hand and say thank you. Apparently, her son, who went to a school that I don't visit, had been at a party and had passed out on the front lawn of the house. His friends thought it was a big joke and left him there. A group of teens who had heard my talks found him, quickly realised he was in trouble and swung into action. An ambulance was called, and when this mum arrived at the hospital, she was told that if it wasn't for the quick response by the young people who found him, her son may not have survived. She managed to find the group, thank them, and then they told her about my talks. Amazing. But most probably one of the most wonderful things to have happened is a phone call I got just before Christmas a number of years ago. I picked up my phone and the person on the other end asked, is this Paul Dillon? I told them it was, and then they said, are you the drug guy? Now, that could mean a whole pile of things, so I said, I'm sorry, who is this? It ended up being a paramedic from the Gold Coast who was looking for the drug guy, Paul Dillon, who gave talks at schools. Apparently, he had been working at the Schoolies Festival on the Gold Coast earlier that year and had been called to a number of triple zero calls, arriving to find someone or sometimes a small group of young people looking after a very unwell person in the most amazing way. They were usually calm and collected, the sick person was safely in the recovery position, and it was very unlike a typical teen emergency. It seemed that these guys knew what they were doing. When he asked how they knew, he said the overwhelming response was, Paul Dillon came to our school. As he said, he had no idea who I was or what I did, but he wanted to find me and let me know what had happened. When bad things happen, particularly deaths, it's never easy. If I find out that someone has died from a school that I have visited, that's devastating. But if one person is able to save someone's life by something I've said, that makes everything I do totally worth the effort. Now, it's taken me a while to get to this topic, but in this episode, I thought I'd take a look at the illegal drug more Australians use than any other, cannabis. Cannabis, marijuana, grass, weed, pot, ganja, yandy, it's got lots of different names, and it's used by lots of different groups of people. In fact, in 2019, it was estimated that there were around 200 million people around the world who had used the drug. For me, without a doubt, the toughest drug to talk about with young people is cannabis. I've worked very hard over the years to try to come up with messages about this drug that are accurate, useful, and make sense to teens. The one thing that we can say with certainty about this drug that almost everyone agrees on, including the pro-cannabis lobby, those are the people who want the drug legalized, is that teenagers shouldn't use it. Put simply, the younger you start using cannabis, the greater the risk of problems in the future. As a result, we do our best to try, at the very least, to delay young people using it for as long as possible. The trouble is that during your teens, you're far more likely to push boundaries and take risks. That's just the way the adolescent brain works, and as a result, some young people will experiment with drugs like cannabis. Trying to stop that happening is extremely difficult, and we can provide you with all the reasons in the world why you shouldn't be doing it, and there's a pretty good chance that some of you just won't listen. 
I try to be as honest as I can with the students I present to. And as such, when it comes to cannabis, I make it very clear that the vast majority of those who use this drug are unlikely to experience major problems. There are certainly some people who don't like me saying this, but it is the truth. Around one third of all Australians have tried cannabis at some point in their lives. And if everyone who used it ended up with terrible problems, there'd be a lot of people with terrible problems. But, and it's a big but, those who do have a problem usually have a major problem, often a life-changing problem that not only affects them, but those around them, including their family and friends. We believe it's about one in 10 cannabis users who will experience problems with the drug. That's a similar number for those who drink alcohol. Of course, many teens who hear that rarely believe that they're going to be that one person out of 10 who'll have things go wrong. I get asked a lot of questions about cannabis, and there's no way I can address them all in this episode. So I thought that for now, I'd do my best to answer three of the questions I'm most often asked in this area. The first is about the medicinal use of cannabis. Young people usually want to know my view on the issue, and also, if it is used as a medicine, why is it still seen as a problem by some? Let me start by making it clear that I totally support medicinal cannabis, and if it can help one person easing their suffering in any way, that's great. But it's important to remember that cannabis, and more specifically, some of the compounds found in the plant called cannabinoids, are like almost every other treatment. They work for some people and don't have the same effect for others. Sadly, cannabis is often portrayed as being a silver bullet that will cure almost anything, and that's just not the case. Using cannabis for medicinal reasons is all about weighing up the pros and cons. There are a range of potential harms associated with its use, many of them linked to smoking the drug, others that are not. However, if a person is dying from cancer, they are in great pain and do not have long to live, and nothing else seems to work, the possibility of relief by using cannabis is undoubtedly worth almost any potential risk. I told the following story in the book I wrote a number of years ago about a man in his 70s named Sid. He'd been married to his wife Mary for over 50 years, and for the past few years she'd been extremely ill due to cancer. She had been bedridden for the past six months and had been in great pain. None of the painkillers the doctors had prescribed her had worked, and they told him she did not have much time to live, and the best they could do was to keep her as comfortable as possible. Sid had heard about the possible pain-relieving properties of cannabis and got one of his grandsons to buy some. He put it into a tea and saw an immediate effect on his wife. He'd heard me on the radio and contacted me to find out how he could get the drug legally. At that time, that wasn't possible, but I referred him to a website that I thought could help him and wished him well. More than a year later, Sid wrote to me to tell me that Mary had died. She had spent the final few months of her life almost pain-free due to the cannabis that Sid had been able to access. Clearly, cannabis had been a godsend to this elderly couple. Researchers found that one of the compounds in cannabis, CBD, can help people with anxiety. Small children with epilepsy, those with conditions like MS and Parkinson's disease, and cancer patients going through chemotherapy have all reported benefits from using cannabis, or more particularly, CBD. 
Importantly, however, there are others who've used cannabis to treat the exact same problems and sadly did not have the same experience. That's how I see the medicinal use of cannabis. It certainly won't help everyone, but if it can help someone who is sick and the benefits outweigh the potential risks in that person's view, then I support it. Now, does that mean because it can be used as a treatment or medicine by some that it is risk-free? Of course not. As already said, for some who use it, it can cause major life-changing problems. Is it a terrible drug that kills lots of people, rots your brains and makes your legs drop off? Of course not. But let's not kid ourselves and say it's a harmless herb that's never caused any issues for anyone who has ever used it. The next question I regularly get asked is about greening out and what causes it. Now, some of you who have nothing to do with cannabis will have no idea what I'm talking about here. But pretty well anyone who has any contact with those who do use this drug or they've ever used it themselves would have heard of it. Greening out, also known as whiting out, is used to describe a situation where a person feels sick after using cannabis. They usually go pale, turning green or white. They're likely to sweat a lot, start to feel dizzy and nauseous, and may even vomit. It can be quite frightening, and people can become very anxious and start to panic. It seems that this is much more likely to occur if you've been drinking alcohol before you start smoking. Studies have found that when you have alcohol in your blood, you appear to absorb THC faster. THC is another compound found in cannabis, the one that gets you stoned. So even though someone has smoked what they thought was a normal amount for them, because the alcohol is in their system, it's believed that it gets absorbed faster, resulting in a much stronger and often far more unpleasant effect than usual. This is where that old rhyme that some of you may have heard comes from. Beer and grass, you're on your ass. Grass and beer, you're in the clear. So it looks like this could be true, at least to some extent. Drinking alcohol before using cannabis may actually cause you to absorb more THC, resulting in greening out. So does that mean if you use the drugs the other way around, you really are in the clear? Look, mixing two drugs together in any combination does not necessarily mean you're going to have twice as much fun, but it certainly increases the possibility of something going wrong there's always a risk. The final question is the toughest. I said right at the beginning that everyone agrees that teens shouldn't use cannabis. So why is that the case? Firstly, and most importantly, it's illegal. If you get caught with cannabis in your possession, you are breaking the law and your life can change as a result. The law has been tweaked in the ACT, but it is still an illegal drug for those aged under 18. As I always say to young people who have a problem with that law, for whatever reason, don't just sit there and moan about it. Join a group to have the law changed. That's absolutely your right. But currently, that is the law, whether you like it or not. Now, at this point, I could talk about research that has found this problem and that, and it could all become very boring. I'm pretty sure that most teens are aware that if you smoke the drug, whether via a bong or a joint or whatever, you're likely to experience many of the same risks associated with smoking tobacco, including cancer and respiratory disease. There do appear to be some differences between the two, but essentially, smoking is smoking. You're burning a substance and creating burnt matter. That burnt matter contains tar. You're then inhaling that into your lungs. 
not a great idea. There are some studies that have found that regular use, particularly by teens, can decrease memory and learning abilities. The problem is that there are many young people who use cannabis who appear to experience no problems at all in these areas. They do well at school and achieve great results. Not surprisingly, when research findings don't match young people's experiences, they're likely to reject them. Due to the young people I've met over the years who have experienced problems with their use of cannabis, my greatest concern is around mental health. I wish I had some really simple statement that made this easy, but there isn't one. The truth is that the link between cannabis and any mental health problem is not crystal clear. Some people experience very unpleasant psychological effects when they use cannabis, like severe anxiety or paranoia. If they use a lot, they may even experience more extreme effects such as delusions and hallucinations, although this is rare. Thankfully, those effects do not last in most cases. But nevertheless, they can still be very frightening. And that's why there appear to be many people who try the drug once or twice and never do it again. Sadly, however, there are some people who are more vulnerable to the psychological effects of cannabis and should avoid using the drug. Cannabis does not cause mental health problems, but it appears to act as a key to open up or unlock conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar. This is not a particularly scientific way of discussing the issue, but some people have these type of conditions locked away, sometimes lying dormant for their whole life. If they're lucky, these problems may never come to the surface, but using cannabis can unlock this pre-existing condition and might trigger an episode. The biggest risk factor here is if you have a family history of a mental health condition. Put really simply, if you know you have a blood relative on your mum's or dad's side who has schizophrenia or bipolar, you could have a genetic predisposition to one of these conditions and as a result should avoid using cannabis. The sad thing is that those who are more susceptible to these issues appear to be more attracted to cannabis and its effects. That is, they're more likely to want to use the drug. I remember a year 11 young man coming up to me after a talk I had given where I had spoken about the unlocking nature of cannabis. He told me that he had started using cannabis when he was in year nine and was smoking regularly shortly afterwards, at least a couple of times a week. It wasn't long before he began to experience huge mood swings resulting in major problems with school and his family. He'd recently been diagnosed with bipolar and was put onto medication that he did not like, and he was clearly very unhappy. He looked at me and asked, you said cannabis can unlock bipolar. Is there any way I can lock it back up again? Unfortunately, once something like bipolar has opened up, you can't lock it back up again. It can be managed with medication and the like, and many people live with these conditions very successfully. But if they can be avoided in the first place, that would be so much better. Unlike alcohol, we don't know a lot about the impact cannabis has on the developing brain. But experts do agree that teens are likely to be far more susceptible to lasting damage from using the drug at that age. We don't know whether there's a safe level of use. And most importantly, we don't know whether the changes that have been seen in brain images of young cannabis users are permanent or if the brain recovers once they stop using the drug and they get older. Even though cannabis has been around for so long, we still don't have any really simple messages to give to young people. 
Yes, some people can use this drug for years and experience very few, if any, problems. Some will use cannabis to treat a medical condition and benefit as a result. But there are others, often young people, particularly if they are regular users, who end up with life-changing problems. Well, that's the end of another episode. As always, I'd love to get your feedback on what you've heard and whether you found it helpful. If you did, and you think someone you know may be interested in listening, make sure you share the podcast with them. If you have a question on anything to do with cannabis or any other drug, send it to me by email and I'll do my very best to get it on a future episode of The Real Deal on Drugs. Thanks for listening and stay safe.